Welcome to GM Street, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. And speaking of the network, with all the news around the NBA, I highly suggest you check out the Ringer NBA Show podcast feed. We have new episodes every weekday, including Monday's newly revamped Heat Check, where John Gonzalez goes deep with various NBA experts. Also, be sure to check out TheRinger.com. Today on the site, staff writer Katie Bakes got a chance to talk to Shib Sibs, a brother-sister figure skating duo who will be competing in the Winter Olympics. And now... Some clown named Mike Lombardi! Lombardi, how you doing? I'm great, Tate Frazier. I couldn't be better. Look, I think, uh, you know, Kelsey gave me exactly what I deserved. You know, I mean, I, I inaccurately predicted uh, that Peterson would fail. I made no bones about it, and uh, they won the Super Bowl, and they should relish in the glory that comes with winning a Super Bowl and winning a title because it's the hardest achievement, and uh, I think it's really great. I I'm, I'm pre- appreciate that he, uh, that he said it because I think that it's, he's right. Yeah, and it was uh, it, it was a very impassioned speech. We've we've all seen it. Was it was great. I it, mean, it, it's like yeah, a professional obviously wrestler. It stirred, it stirred <laughs> a lot of emotion, didn't it? Huh? Yeah, absolutely. It got me all fired up. Um, I thought Travis Kelsey was my favorite Kelsey. In fact, uh, my fantasy football name was named uh, Kelsey Grammar after Travis. But after this whole thing, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm Team Jason. He's got the enthusiasm and the energy, and uh, he obviously was very proud about uh, his coach Doug Peterson and getting this win. And and my favorite thing was that he went on fourth and. Down, you know, he kept saying that he went on fourth and down, uh, and that but really look, we me both up. own it. I mean, look, we've been busting their asses about the parade forever, right? We kept saying yes. they planned it. Angelo Cataldi at WIP, the morning show, <laughs> he had the parade route. I mean, look, they've had this parade better planned than than when uh, any than the Mummers parade at the first of the year. So I, I, I give them the credit. This is their day to shine. They deserve it. They did something that not many people thought they could do when the season started. And they did something in the Super Bowl that a lot of experts didn't predict that they would win, and yet they still won. So my hat's off to them. And the parade's been a been a whole ordeal. It's been covered all day. Been a lot of storylines, a lot of players saying some things. Uh, just in the in the backlash and, and and everything surrounding the Super Bowl, we've had all the all the takes have been done. Everyone's you know given their opinions on what happened. Everyone's talking about obviously the first Super Bowl victory of all time uh, for for the Philadelphia Eagles and the first time since 1960 they win an NFL championship. But just recapping the Super Bowl and some of the little storylines that have come out of that game, what, what's what's the main thing that's really stuck out to you that you've seen uh, uh, since? Sunday night happened? Well, I, I think when you go back and watch the tape of the game, I, I, I really think, you know, when you talk about it and you look at it, uh, I, I think the fourth quarter drive that, you know, that went, it went so long. I mean, they got the ball in the fourth quarter. They're down by a point, correct? I mean, so they get the ball, they're down by a point, mm-hmm. and it's the first lead Philly. It's the first lead New England had with 9:22 to go in the game. They take seven minutes off the clock, and they get their the Eagles defense gets rested. That's seven minutes, and I think as the Patriots look back on that series, they're going to say to themselves two things. They're going to say we should have blitzed more, okay, mm-hmm. because we should have either let them score or we should have get their defense back on the field because what happened was they got rested and they felt better about themselves. Secondly, they're going to be disappointed that on the most crucial down, and this is something that happens, the Patriots talk about it every single week, Belichick presents it to the team, it's got to have it plays. You've got to have it plays. And I know the Eagles are celebrating a parade today, and I know the Eagles did not like Chip Kelly. But the fourth and one call that really kept the drive alive, that got them over the hump, the pass to Ertz that everybody knew Ertz was going to get to, and this is where I think the Patriots really are going to feel bad. The Patriots practice got to have a place, 
and you've got to get Ertz. It's Ertz. I can hear Belichick in a meeting. Look, we're going to have to get Ertz. Ertz, they're going to throw the ball to Ertz when, it's, when it counts. We've got to get on Ertz. And they did. And they did it with the most basic Chip Kelly day one install play in the Chip Kelly offense. So not only did they steal the play from Kelly, which was perfect because this is what Foles does really well, the ball went to Ertz, which everybody knew it was going to go to on fourth and one, and they made the play and they kept the drive alive. And it was one of the first times they really got any kind of pressure on Foles and he had to make a throw where he wasn't completely set. And I think that drive, Tate Frazier, when you look back on that drive, that drive really is the one, to me, is really what did him in. I mean, I think that's really what did him in. And it's sort of ironic for it to be a, a Chip Kelly play and a Nick Foles playing quarterback for the Eagles for it to all come uh, right. to fruition and, and work out for the Philadelphia it, it's Eagles. It's kind of ironic, right? I mean, you know, it's like, look, the Eagle offense is is, is like the city of Vienna. Vienna is a, is, a, is a city that has a bunch of different cultures, right? So if you go to Vienna, Tate Frazier, with your girlfriend, if you want to get the best Armenian brandy, they have it. If you want to get the best French pastry, they have it in Vienna. Vienna is a commingling of all these cultures, right? And so the Eagles' offense is a commingling of all these offenses. And what you've got to give Peterson so much credit for in his Vienna offense, because I'm going to nickname it the Vienna offense, is his ability to execute it and then they found the plays that work for Foles the best. And I think that's where it really showed that's where he showed his merit as a head coach because he wasn't he wasn't so stubborn to say, "Well, I'm only going to run my plays." That play that won the game was a Chip Kelly play when you watch it on tape. Now, the other thing I think that's clear this when you watch the Super Bowl tape is this. They refereed the game unlike any other game. On that Chip Kelly play was a, was was a pick. And during the game, there was a bunch of picks. There was no holding calls in the game. And this goes for both sides. I liked it. I think every game should be officiated like the Super Bowl. They let them play. They called what they had to call when it was obvious. But the game flowed much better. To me, it was a great way to game. I think it benefited no team either way, even though one team got a pick and all that. It didn't benefit anybody. It was really a well-officiated game because they let them play. First off, I have to say that's the second Vienna res- uh, reference on this podcast, and I'm pretty impressed. The only thing I could bring up about Vienna is like Vienna sausage, so uh, that was pretty good you by get you. You the greatest sausage in Vienna. There so, you go. Look, we gotta, I, we've been invited to do a podcast in Vienna. I think we should do one. I really do. I think we should go over there. We'll see. We may have to if Jason Kelsey finds out our addresses and comes after us. Um, quickly, though, just talking about got to have it plays. Uh, I've been watching all the, the back end stuff and, and seeing some of the sound effects on uh, on the field from Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, Malcolm Jenkins ended up becoming a star. If you've watched any of this, he uh, on the Tom Brady pass that the Tom Brady uh, dropped a catch. Um, Malcolm Jenkins slaps him on the butt and is like, come on, Tom. Come on, Tom. It's prime time. You got to make that play, and you can tell Brady, you can tell Brady's a little frustrated by it. And then uh, he also sees Steph Curry before the game, and Curry is an Under Armour guy, and so is Tom Brady. So he's wearing red for for Under Armour and uh, for Tom Brady, obviously in the Patriots. And Malcolm Jenkins is talking to all the the Eagles players, and uh, he, he says, you know, look at that guy over there. That that's a top dog. He's not an underdog. See, top dogs don't like us. The underdogs, you know, that's what we are. We're the underdogs. So he's like, I don't like Steph Curry anymore. Um, um, so he was telling his team that before. So I thought those were two funny things that happened after the fact um, that you may not I, I have seen. I think the Eagles embraced this underdog role. I, I think the best thing that's ever happened to them is they embraced this underdog role and they and, and they took ownership of it and they just really played into it and it really helped motivate their team. Now they become the hunted one. Now they are, you know, they won. They're they're now Virgil Salazzo. Do you know who Virgil Salazzo is? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, the guy in The Godfather, when yes. he tells him, I am now the hunted one. Yes. Well, now the Eagles are going to be the hunted one. And it's going to get harder when you're the hunted one. When you're the underdog, it, it's not that it's easy, and I'm not minimizing what they did. But now it becomes a much different challenge because you can't use that we're not, nobody likes us, nobody respects us mode. You, you have to basically show your stuff each week. They have enough good players to do it. I think they clearly have enough of the Vienna offense to do it. So we'll see. It'll be a fascinating offseason. Yep, you can die and be a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And uh, Philadelphia now has a target on their back, and we'll see if uh, if that can all hold up. The way they're celebrating in Philadelphia is really holding up. Did I have to ask you quickly, did you see any of the videos or any of the backlash uh, in Philadelphia when they were celebrating the, uh, the, the Super Bowl win that Sunday night? No, I, I did not. I mean, I got a picture from the entire uh, Barry family who uh-huh. lived next door to me in Ocean City celebrating the win. <laughs> I mean, I had to, I had to eat that. You know, of course, I put the house up for sale immediately after after I got the picture. But other than that, you know, I, I heard somebody was eating uh, horse crap back there. I mean, yep. look, I, 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 what I love the most about the parade today was that you know, Bud Light decided to be a, a man of their word, and they're going to fund the pro, their beer for the parade, which I thought was incredible. What a great, what a great idea by Bud Light to do that, and I think it just was awesome. But no, I didn't watch much of it. I mean, look, I, you know, we did our podcast, and you know, I I, I wanted to you know really kind of just kind of figure out exactly what happened in that game, and when you break it down and you analyze it, like we have fifteen different ways. I think this is going to be one of the hardest Patriot losses to ever get over. And I think it's because you have a lot of those gotta-have-it moments that uh, usually Bill Belichick and his team uh, seem to come through with those, and it's, it's what everyone expected. When they take that lead 33-32, most people, if you if you were a betting man, if you were to ask anyone in the room, they would say, we're going to take Tom Brady and the Patriots down here in the uh, fourth quarter. But the Eagles uh, persevered like they did all season, and, and they proved to be right. And uh, Jason Kelsey deserves to be yelling at everyone, and that's what they're doing right now. Um, anything else from the Super Bowl we should cover, or should we get into some real big news that's been going on uh, around the NFL? You know, I, I think, look, I, I think that's that's kind of does it. I think the Nick Foles contract will be interesting how it plays out. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe the, the the Eagles won't do anything with it. I think they'll just sit tight. But you got to give credit. I think there's not enough credit for what Chip Nick Foles did in that Chip Kelly style of offense. And I think whoever does decide to get Nick Foles, whether it's this year or next year, needs to remember that he really works well in that offense. Yep, the run pass option, the RPO. We'll see a lot uh, of Nick Foles in that offense, I'm sure. Let's talk about one of your former players, a guy that we know a lot about, and that is Jimmy GQ, Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, the 49ers have decided to give him a league-high $27.5 million over five years uh, with $74 million guaranteed. That, that tallies up to, uh, if you can do the math, $137.5 million uh, overall in the contract. We knew the 49ers really liked what they saw with Jimmy G in those last five games. He goes 5-0 and <laughs> in his first five starts with the 49ers has an has an amazing run to end the season and now they've locked him up to be their quarterback reportedly yeah i mean look the the niners saw what they had and they weren't going to let it go and i mean i think what you're going to see now is the price of quarterbacks are going to keep going up i mean let's face it the, the cap is going up to i believe 175 178 million dollars next year and i i can only tell you this from an executive and a personnel guy there's not enough good players to get to the cap there's really not i mean there's there's People think there are, but there's not. Like you could sign a guy and pay him five million, and you could sign another player and pay him a million, and you might just have the same guy. There's mm-hmm. not that four million gap. But where there is a gap is at quarterback, and that's where the players are going to get the most money. The quarterback's salaries are going to break this thirty million a year bar- uh, barrier, and it's going to keep going. Aaron Rodgers is going to break it. 
Matt Ryan's going to break it. The guaranteed money's not going to be really that important in the sense they all know they're going to earn their money. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo's got what? They think he could potentially get ninety million of guaranteed. Well, if you pay, if you pay, if he plays three years or four years, he's going to earn ninety million. I mean, it would only be if he didn't play would he not earn it. I mean, people say, well, you don't know that because you haven't seen enough sample size of Jimmy G. No, I think we have. What we've seen and what we learned in the Super Bowl was that Nick Foles works really well under the Chip Kelly style of offense with some variations. We also know that Jimmy Garoppolo can really excel under the Kyle Shanahan offense without many variations and can only get better with another year in training camp involved. So I think this is a smart play by the 49ers. They got the number one thing they had to do in the offseason out of the way. They gave the best player on their team the most money, which they have to do. And now it's up to him to handle the success, to handle the fame and the fortune, and really get down to business and make this team better, and they can move forward with it. But I also think it's going to be a situation where the quarterbacks are going to have to get paid. There's not enough great players to get paid. And it's it's funny, when I read this about Garoppolo, I thought of the 14 draft, right? The great Blake Bortles. We can't have a podcast without Blake Bortles' name, right? I mean, that's (laughs) the rule, correct? I can't wait until Blake Bortles wins his Super Bowl and starts yelling at us. Uh, That's that's when we know we really made it. (laughs) Anyway... Blake Bortles is the first pick, is the first quarterback off the board. We got Jimmy, Johnny Manziel, Teddy Bridgewater, but the two guys in the second round own the draft, Jimmy and Derek Carr. Yeah, and it and it's crazy to think about. I mean, I think if you asked someone before the 2016 season if you said that Derek Carr would be the second second highest paid quarterback in the Bay. You know, nobody would understand what you were talking about at that point because he had just gotten this huge deal. Everyone had had coronated the Oakland Raiders and and thought they would make a Super Bowl run in the AFC. And now we go full circle, and Jimmy Garoppolo is the golden boy of the Bay, and uh, everyone has uh, high hopes for the 49ers next year. It's a it's a weird shift in in one season to see what what's going on with uh, Shanahan and everything with San Francisco up there. I, I also want yeah, to ask. Yeah, I mean, look. Yeah. Look, I, I also think that this is going to play into whether when Wentz is healthy, what his contract's going to be. Mm-hmm. I think it's also going to play into what, what Jared Goff could possibly get. These other quarterbacks who are under the rookie contract, as they get to this point, where are those numbers going to head to? And I think that's really going to be the interesting thing. The interesting thing to me, too, I've seen a lot of people uh, that sort of after the Super Bowl when Nick Foles wins Super Bowl MVP and takes you know this team as a backup quarterback, a lot of people said, well, do we really have to value the position of quarterback and pay these guys like we have when we see that you can scheme with a backup quarterback? But Nick Foles played at a level of an elite quarterback in the Super Bowl run, sort of like what Flacco did uh, back in 2012-2013. Um, but, but do you think that does devalue the position a little bit if teams think that they can take a guy like Foles and still win a Super Bowl if you have a dominant defense? Well, look, Jacksonville proves it can't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Jacksonville proves it can't happen. I mean, if there ever was a team that could do it, it was Jacksonville. They were set up there. You know, Jacksonville's defense played New England better than the Eagles' defense did. They were outstanding with it. So, uh, you, you know, they, they just – but they couldn't win the game. The quarterback couldn't make enough throws. And the Patriots' defense, which we saw all year as, as a potential liability, you know, we saw this, and I think that that's where – they took advantage of it where they couldn't take advantage of it against the Eagles. The Eagles made them pay. I mean, look, when you're 12 for 18, give up 12 for 18 on conversion downs, you're not good enough. Yep. 
Not at all. And uh, it's crazy. If you said if you said to someone that it was 12 for 18 in the Super Bowl with the Eagles, you would automatically assume that was a, a vintage Carson Wentz game. But, uh, of course, instead it was Nick Foles, the Super Bowl MVP. Um, should we get into some, some coaching transactions and, and the big story of yesterday? And that was Josh McDaniels deciding not to sign uh, with the Indianapolis Colts and, and pull his name out of consideration after they announced he would be the head coach. He, he decides to return to New England and stay the offensive coordinator and uh, apparently got a pay bump to... Uh, what most people would believe to be a, a head coach and waiting situation under Belichick. But uh, just the McDaniel situation starting off, when he commits that morning, what is your first thought? You know, jo- J- Josh, you know, this was not a situation where it was committed. I mean, he, this has got collateral damage attached to it. So, you know, Josh had gone back, you know, from his Denver days, he went to St. Louis and he kind of gone to New England and to, to reestablish his career and, He's had numerous opportunities to be a head coaching candidate. You know, when I was in Cleveland, we tried to get him as the head coach. He didn't want to. Be, he didn't turn that job down. You know, last year he just turned down the San Francisco job. Uh, he did. You know, he didn't want to be. And then this year he accepted the Indianapolis Colts' job. Mm-hmm. He gave accepted the job, and then he went about hiring coaches on his staff to put him in Indianapolis. And those coaches moved there, and they went there. And so this one was different. When everybody was saying, I'm hearing Josh is getting cold feet, I was very strong in the sense of saying no way because I knew that there were coaches already in, Oak, in Indianapolis working. And when you, when you hire somebody and you extend, and then I also know that Jim Irsay and Chris Bauer, the general manager, went back and spent time with Josh and his wife, and they talked and had a great conversation, and everybody was all in on this. And then that's when they moved forward with the hiring of other people. So to me, there's a difference between, you know, agreeing to the deal and giving your word. And then there's a difference between not to to taking another deal. And I think there's the line that really becomes offensive to me. And, and And I think as a friend of Josh's, it's disappointing because it's something he wanted to be. But when I look at this situation right now, you have to say, from my opinion and my viewpoint, you don't really want to be a head coach. People say, well, you know, maybe the Patriots are going to make him their head coach. My answer is, I think what Josh ultimately decided to do, and there's no knowledge on my part on this at all, is he took a guarantee that he can stay in New England for six, seven, eight years, whether it's the head coach or whether he stays the offensive coordinator with somebody else's the head coach. I think the, the, the decision was he wanted continuity over whether he's a head coach or not. And I think that that's fine, Tate Frazier, but you could have made that decision without collateral damage to others. Absolutely, and it's sort of a situation we see that in college. A guy like Bud Foster, you know, when Frank Beamer leaves West uh, Virginia Tech, you know, Bud Foster has this deal where he stays on as defensive coordinator. So, uh, you know, McDaniel's could have a, a situation like that in New England where he can just play it out and stay the offensive coordinator. You know, determining what they do with the head coaching position, and obviously what Belichick does. Uh, the big thing I would do want to ask you about the big the big fallout from this was uh, Bob Lamont, the the agent for Josh McDaniels. He comes out and basically eviscerates. Uh, and says that um, you know this was this was a classless move on McDaniel's parts and, and uh, you know that he didn't respect the move and he was going to drop him as a client because of it. Um, do you think there's any fallback for McDaniel's getting any other offers from from other jobs because of this, or is this sort oh, of the one and done? Yeah, I think what Bob Lamont said is true. I think Bob Lamont's right. I think it's professional suicide. I think jo- Josh did something that you know when you go against your word, Tate Fraser, your word. I, I, I want to quote Marlow here. Remember Marlow from The Wire? Your word is my bond. My name is my name. My mm-hmm. name's my name, you know, and so 
when you give your word to somebody, look, I have, uh, you can't say, well, my family didn't want to go. You, you can't say that because that's not fair that after you've agreed. That's not fair. That, as a man, you're not teaching your kids that your word is your word. Mm-hmm. Right? When you say, I am all in, and you shake on it, and they walk out of your house, and you have a deal, you can't turn around and say, well, I've changed my mind. There's no changing your mind. This isn't summer camp. You can't go to summer camp and decide you want to go home after two weeks. That's fine. You can do that at summer camp. You can't do that in a billion-dollar industry. You impact other people's lives. And I think it's a horrible message. And Bob Lamont has a client base. And there's a lot of coaches in the NFL that are really angry with, with, with Josh McDaniels right now for his behavior, for what he's done to those coaches who are sitting in there working. I mean, look, if he doesn't want the job, that's every right. He has every right to turn the job down. However, he accepted the job. He gave his word. And I think as someone who's defended Josh more than anybody in football, and I have, and I have worked next to him, I think he's one of the brilliant minds of football. I'll say that. But this is a decision that that he made that I think was horrible, and I think Bob Lamont is correct in what he did because Josh thought only of himself and he can say it's about his family, but it's like it's like you recruit me to go to North Carolina and I live in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And then I call you up after we spent four months recruiting me, and I say, well, you know, North Carolina is too far from Hawaii. I don't want to go. Well, we've never changed the locations of the place. You should have told me that from the beginning. <laughs> if it was too far from the beginning, you should have told me that, right? Yeah, don't it's string me along. It's the same thing here. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing here. If your family doesn't want to move, then don't go through all this. I just think it's horrible. Bob Lamont had no choice. I mean, Bob Lamont had no choice because Bob Lamont has spent time defending Josh to other people. He's got him in front of the Giants as an interview. He got him in front of, in front of the, the Chicago Bears for an interview. His work got him in front of that, and Bob was vouching for his character. Jimmy Sexton represented Josh at one time, and Josh fired Jimmy Sexton because he felt like he didn't help him get a, a GM inter- and get a head coaching interview. Well, you can't have it both ways. You either want to be a head coach or you want to be not. Now, the other thing I really want to correct is people say, well, he did the same thing Belichick did. Completely wrong. (laughs) Belichick wanted to be a head coach. Yes. Belichick just did not want to be a head coach for the New York Giants and have Steve Gutman. Belichick did not want to walk into Bill Parcells' footsteps constantly. McDaniels is is in a position that he's going to have to follow the greatest head coach in the history of any sport. Who wants to do that? Mm hmm. And so I think people that make those comparisons are completely wrong. They're not. They're not. They both accepted jobs and turned them down. That's the only similarity that holds the place to be true. And, and I just think, to me, it's really disappointing as someone who I talk to repeatedly about all this stuff, about preparing for a head cob, the culture, all that, to just do this to other people with collateral damage that he did is really heartbreaking for me because I, I, I don't understand it. I understand you not wanting to do it from the start. I don't understand it once you've made the decision. Yeah, cold feet is an interesting thing in the world. And we should say Chris Ballard comes out uh, and after they have their press conference. It was actually scheduled for McDaniels to have his press conference there in Indianapolis on Wednesday. And Ballard had to host the press conference. And at the end, um, he says the rivalry, a little bit under, under his breath as he's walking out, he says the rivalry is back on, um, you know, in reference to the New England Patriots. I mean, I know that's become the narrative where it's the Colts versus the Patriots. This is some sort of uh, revenge for Deflate Gate for Indianapolis reporting them to the NFL, all this sort of stuff. How much do you buy into that? I, I think it really came down to that 
McDaniels doesn't want to be a head coach. I think, it, and I think the Patriots took advantage of the situation that ultimately he really didn't want to go, and they put a deal in front of him that was enticing for him to that that made it easy for him to stay in the same house to work in the same building, whether he wants to be the head coach or not, I don't know. Because if you really want to be a head coach, you don't want to follow the greatest coach in the history of the sport. I mean, mm-hmm. when has that ever been successful? I mean, ask Phil Bankston at the Packers. You know, ask anybody who followed Don Shula. Ask, you know, anybody who followed Bear Bryant at Alabama. I mean, it just doesn't work. It, it takes time. And so, you know, why would you want to do that? So what you're saying with all this is you really, maybe you really don't want to be a head coach. And that's fine. Tate Frazier, that's fine. Don't be a head coach. But don't string people along. Don't give collateral damage. I mean, he turned down the opportunity to be the head coach of the Browns, but really we were so we weren't in that process. We were wanted him to, and he took his name out. You know, now he told me he would be interested, he told me all those things, and, and I didn't get mad at him for that because for me, he had every right to do that. He didn't commit, we didn't commit, we didn't offer, but now this, to me, is really not right. It's not fair to the Colts. It's not fair to anyone. Mm-hmm. How would you like to be, how would you like to be uh, the defensive coordinator, Matt, uh, you know, sitting there and, and knowing that you're working? You, you, left your, you moved your family. Mm-hmm. You left Dallas. You gave up a stable job with the Cowboys. You moved to Indianapolis. You want to work for this guy. You've been talking to Josh for pretty much six, seven months, eight months, maybe a year. You've become friends with him. And then he leaves you at the altar like that. Like, how would you handle that? I don't know, but I mean, what happens? I mean, did McDaniels call these guys individually? Does he call Marinelli and say, hey, sorry, uh, this isn't quite going to work out? Or is it one of those things where they figure it out through the media and they find out on Twitter or whatever it is? Well, my understanding is, you know, around 4.30 uh, Eastern time is when uh, some people started to know he was going to do it. It took him about an hour to call Josh. It took Josh an hour to call uh, Chris Ballard. I think he didn't call till about 5.30 to tell him, and then I believe he did call the coaches that were in the building mm-hmm. that were working for because he had three coaches in the building already working, planning for their meeting that they were going to have on the next day. And so, you know, I, I think he did talk to them. As for the other people that he was potentially trying to hire, I have no idea. I, I have no idea. I, I just think it's a sad commentary on, you know, one of the areas of leadership that is most important is called management of trust. Mm-hmm. People have to trust what you say. Now, you can be an asshole, but you got to be a consistent asshole. <laughs> you can be a jerk, but you got to be a consistent jerk. People trust you when you do that. This is a really a violation of that principle. Seems like a very millennial move. Uh, I know that. You know, like... you know, Dave Frazier. I would say that. I don't, and I don't want to. I don't want to bash the millennials here. I think this is not. It's a, all right. It's not fair to the millennials. No, it's. I don't fair. think it's fair to the millennials. I, I don't. I think it's really a selfish move. I think it's selfish. It's selfish and self-indulgent, and I think it doesn't take into account the other people. And I don't care what excuse you could offer, because the reality of it is, is you committed. Your word is your word. Mm-hmm. You, you you walked out of a. You, you didn't say, "Let me think about it." Let me think about it. You didn't say that. You didn't say, like, my family's not going to be happy with it. You didn't say that. You know, you had an ample opportunity to do that, and yet you didn't. And so that now causes other people to feel the repercussions. And really, again, like I said to you earlier, when he didn't take the Cleveland job, I never got angry with him about that because I felt like, we A, we never offered it to him, and B, he never said he was going. He never said he, t- he would take it. Mm-hmm. But this job, he did say that, and I think that's why. 
Yeah, we uh, we were deep in the process here with uh, McDaniel's going to the Colts, and obviously, just the worst part was just the the way it came across from a PR standpoint. You know, having all this stuff put out there, a press conference already planned. You know, the Colts store, the the NFL store, put out visors, said it was visor season. There was all these little things that came out that uh, just did not look good for McDaniel's, and especially did not look good for the Colts. But um, just looking now, you know, obviously- I, I, I want to say this about the Colts. I don't think I don't know what the Colts could have done wrong. I don't think it was the the Colts. Well, the only thing the Colts done wrong was trust a man's word. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could. I don't think you can get mad at the Colts for that. If you give me your word, as Uncle Junior's once said, if you're going to be somewhere, be somewhere. If you give me your word that you're going to be somewhere, I trust you're going to be there, right? You give me your word. And so what the Colts did to me was they did something that most all of us do, which is trust the word of others. And when you lose that trust of the word of others, you lose everything. You have nothing. And this is not going to be one thing that goes away. This is going to be with him for the rest of his life. And so he's going to have to defend this to people that want to know why. And he's going to say, and I don't know what he's going to say because it's none of my business, but he's going to probably have reasons for it. But all those reasons would be valid if you didn't give your word. Yeah. Absolutely. And we, I mean, we've seen moments like this in the NFL with, with coaches getting out of situations, you know, uh, Bobby Petrino comes to mind with Atlanta when he got out of there. Um, but this one just going down to the ninth hour or all the way to the 11th hour, honestly, maybe, maybe to the 15th hour, if that even counts, uh, already passed the point where it was agreed upon. It it was pretty tough. I mean, Petrino had a chance to be the, I mean, we, the same thing happened with Petrino with the Raiders. We had, you know, we wanted to, I wanted to hire him at the Raiders to be the head coach of the Raiders. Al wouldn't offer him the job at the time. It took us too long to get to it. And he bailed on it. Give him, okay, fine. You can't, I'm not that mad at him for that. I'm disappointed, not that mad. This one, it was everybody shook. Everybody agreed. We got a deal. And if we lose that as, as, as humans, I just don't know how you come back from that. I mean, your word is what you believe in. And so I'm disappointed in Josh and, and, you know, I'm disappointed that, you know, all the reasons that he has were viable right before that. And unless something happened because he was going in the office to move Kate Frazier. Yep. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't like he was going in there to talk to Kraft and see what's up. He was going in to move out. How do you change? How do you do that? That that was the craziest part about it. I mean, that's why I think a lot of people bought into the idea that Kraft and and uh, and the, the whole team there with the Patriots gave him some sort of offer, some sort of Godfather offer he couldn't refuse um, to stay in New England. That that ended up being the the, the popular narrative um, that came out of there. But it's a crazy story. But just looking at the Colts and what they do from now, I mean, the tough part for them was you know they had a coach a coach in place obviously, so they stopped looking, they start they stopped reaching out to coaches, they stopped trying to 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 find a put a together to try to find a guy to bring in to take over this team and now they have to start back from from ground zero right yeah no doubt I mean they're going to go back I mean Dan Campbell's coming in Leslie Frazier will go in you know and I just hope that the GM who has has to had to deal with collateral damage because now he's got to go back to his owner and say look I I put my faith in this man Mm -hmm. to be that his word was his word and that just takes a that takes a piece of of the credibility away from Ballard which it shouldn't have and I've seen it happen to me, so I understand it, you know. And for me, like I said, I, I didn't really feel that there was ever that commitment. Here there is. And so now, you know, the owner's going to come in, and who's going to be the next coach of the, of the Colts? It's going to be anyone's guess, I would think. But they've got the defense coordinator in place, they've got the offensive line coach in place, and they've got the D-line coach in place. Now, that's not real comfortable for any of those three, because eventually, if they're not hired by the head coach, they could easily be replaced. So it's really – it's what I what I really find – the most distasteful of all is the collateral damage that was done. 
Speaking of collateral damage, let's talk about the defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots, a guy that's gotten a lot of grief uh, since the Super Bowl game, um, and that is Matt Patricia. Uh, he goes to the Detroit Lions. He shaves his beard. He wears a suit. He looks well, he like trimmed it. He didn't shave. He, it. he trimmed, trimmed it. it. That's right. He trimmed it. Trimmed it down to make it a nice and clean cut. Uh, you know, he's he looks like he's trying to be professional and dress up for the job. Um, he had this moment during his press conference where he pulls out his pencil, his patented pencil, and says he wants to get a little bit comfortable little bit more comfortable and he puts the pencil in his ear um, and everyone uh, was I guess impressed by that but um, what do you got to say about Matt Patricia and just his first day on the job he looks like a new man well I think that look I I think Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn are friends and there's a mutual Mm -hmm. trust between one of each of them and they sat in the back room at all the team meetings they sat next to each other and they both share the same uh, philosophical ideas about how they want to build a football team and what they do and you know, you can say a lot of things about which guy's right, which guy's wrong, but I think that unified, that trust that they have in one another is certainly what's going to propel the Lions, and hopefully they can get this thing where they can develop some toughness, they can develop some, some kind of uniqueness in terms of how they handle situational football and also how they build their football team. And I think that the, together, those guys, at least being united, helps. I think we see that in Philadelphia, where I was wrong about Doug – Peterson was the fact that, you know, he learned on the job, he got better at what he did, and the, the the unification between the front office and him worked. And I think that that's something that's going to have to happen in Detroit, and I think it can because those two guys are so close. Yeah, and we should say Bob Quinn, the general manager for the Lions, uh, 12 years with New England and scouting and personnel, and obviously knows Matt Patricia pretty well. We know uh, how it all worked out with Jim Bob Cooter and Matt Stafford. They're pretty happy on the offensive side of the football. So Patricia really comes in and he has one focus that's getting that defense right. And we saw, um, you know, some signs from that, that Lions defense that they have some some stud players. And we obviously remember when Jim Schwartz was there when they had uh, Ziggy Anza and Dominican Sue and that great defensive line. So it's not like uh, it can't happen with the Detroit Lions putting a defense together. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to do some work. I mean, let's face it. And he's going to have to prove to those players there that, you know, what happened in the Super Bowl isn't exactly what what his defense is about. I mean, I think that Super Bowl loss is, you know, it was the worst defensive performance, I think, in Patriot other than the opening game. They gave up 42 points in the opener, and they gave up 41 in this game. So I, I think he's got some work cut out for him to prove that, but... Paul Pascaloni, his defense coordinator, is a guy that was was his 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 mentor at Syracuse, and I I just hope Matt takes a step back. And you know, I know the pencil in the ear is his signature, which is great, but that's really not his signature. I think you see Belichick with a pencil in his ear. So for me, I think what Matt needs to do is take a step back and and really try to find out who he is. And really, he said it in his press conference. He said, "There's no other Bill Belichick," and that's so right. And the one thing we know. Tate Frazier's imitations don't work. I mean, you know, they don't work for snakes. The Mexican milk snake and the Texas snake, they might look alike, but the one's very dangerous and the other one's not. So imitations don't work. And I would strongly urge to to Matt to just be authentic and be who he is and don't cut off any of his clothes and do the things that he thinks he should do and move forward. And all the lessons he learned from the greatest coach of all time, take with him, but don't try to imitate him. Yeah. Uh, imitation only works if you're Frank Caliendo, I think. Um, that's about that's right. it. Yep. Well said. See, that was really well said. That was really well done. Um, before we get out of here, uh, any big uh, other news stories around the NFL that we should catch up on? We obviously know. Uh, Darrell the- Reeves Reeve got cut. Isn't that a shock? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's surprising, huh? Uh, tough for Reeves. I miss Reeves Island. 
I do miss Rivas Island. I'm sure it's warm there. No, I, I, I think, look, I, I think this, this, this Josh McDaniels thing has me upset. It has me disappointed in, in believing in people. And that's life. You get over it. You move on. And, and uh, you understand it. But I think that's the news of the week. And I think a lot of people in the league are going to have a hard time figuring it out. But we move forward. And we're on the next year. The parade's over today. Philly's done their celebrating. Now the hard work comes in maintaining. And, you know, basically being as they're now Virgil Salazzo, they're going to be the hunted one. Absolutely. And uh, maybe next year, Jason Kelsey will have some ice cream with us. Maybe Doug Peterson will join uh, and we'll all say good things about each other. We don't know. I think it's we should possible. do a podcast. From, I think we should go next year to Philly's training camp, do a podcast from there, hang out with Doug and, <laughs> and, and talk and, and just really enjoy it. Because, look, let's face it. They did it. They deserve it. They deserve all the props. They were great. It was remarkable, and I enjoyed watching them. Absolutely. Uh, this has been another edition of GM Street, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thank you. Mike Lombardi. Thanks, Dave Frazier. <laughs>